Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from both academia and industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robots Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, I'm Sam Kriegman. I'm a PhD student at the University of Vermont, and I study evolutionary robotics. Mm-hmm. So I would like to ask you, what is the first robot you built, if you remember, and what is the feeling you had at this time? This, so I'm a computer scientist mm-hmm. by training, so I don't build a lot of robots. Probably the first robot that I ever built was made out of Legos. I don't quite remember what the feeling I had was. I I probably didn't follow the instructions, though. I remember Mm. that. Uh, But I can tell you what the first evolved robot I built or helped to build was. And it it took place last summer. I was spending time in Rebecca Kramer Botiglio's lab at... Yale University and I was working with Rebecca and Dylan Shaw and we were trying to design very simple robots in simulation and then attempting to build them out of hollow silicone voxels that can pneumatically expand and contract in volume. Mm -hmm. So we limited the search space to a two by two by two lattice. So that's just eight points or vertices, and at every point, you can either put a voxel or not, and if a voxel's there, it can either actuate or it can be passive. Mm -hmm. So there's three options at all of the eight coordinates on this lattice, and that means there's three to the eight or like 6,500 possible Mm -hmm. designs, so we could exhaustively search every single one in simulation, and then try to build the best ones. So this was really interesting design mm-hmm. problem and way to kind of ease into the sim to real mm-hmm. uh, domain because there's no controller really. The voxels that actuate, they all expand and contract in phase together. Mm-hmm. So the amount of forward movement, if there's any at all, results from the appropriate asymmetry and the design shape and friction and actuator placement. So it's really fun exercise uh, in automating the design of soft robots, which we think could be useful Mm -hmm. in situations where it's really difficult to know what a robot should look like to begin with. Mm -hmm. Like what should a soft robot look like that's going to do a task that no animal does and no other robot does. We don't have a lot of baselines to to start with. Mm -hmm. So this kind of automated design process and assuming nothing about the shape and material properties or as little as possible, that's what evolutionary robotics is all about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. And I would like to highlight our symmetry because you announced that, that you have now sim to life and that's living robot. And <laughs> and that's something interesting because in the soft robotics community, maybe that's something this level about integrating a living creature and design and this is something maybe completely new from robotics perspective only because this the biology part not so much integrated. So first I would like to ask you, because now you work in a traditional 
concepts of robotics, if we speak about what you say, then the living robot later. But I would like to ask you how you define soft robotics from this experience you have. Uh, how do I define soft robotics? Um, well, I guess from this experience of building with non-traditional materials, we can't define soft robotics necessarily on what the robot is made out of, maybe, mm -hmm. although the tissue is also soft. Um, the intellectually interesting part about soft robots for me is that they can push against their environment in many more ways with different shapes and mm. surface contact geometries and variable stiffness. And they also have a greater capacity to feel the environment and other robots and organisms and humans push back against them. And they can experience more kinds of sensation and mm. interoception and cells have a lot of kinds of sensation that and smart materials have different kinds of sensation and soft materials can just deform in more ways and feel um, more things than an otherwise equivalent but rigid bodied robot with a fixed body mm -hmm. plan and the reason why I think this is important and interesting is because this greater capacity to feel might translate to greater empathy for other agents in different circumstances. And this might help a robot adapt more quickly when it's placed in a new terrain or is damaged or might help it act appropriately mm -hmm. if it can anticipate how a human would feel if it did, if it performed a potential action. So maybe it's less likely to, to harm humans or do something that, that a human would say is unsafe because there's more feeling. I also think that this greater like breadth of interoception and feeling could allow soft robots in that way to become much more intelligent than rigid bodied robots. So there's evidence in neuroscience that we make sense that the world, uh, the way that we do that is grounded in our sensor motor experience. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's some classic examples of this, like uh, jumping. So I know what it feels like to jump and all my touch sensors on my feet leave the ground. I'm no longer making contact with the floor. And when I jump, like particular neurons in my motor cortex light up. And when you mm -hmm. jump and I just watch you jump, those mm -hmm. same neurons light up. And if I'm immobilized and you read stories about people jumping, mm -hmm. you can see those same neurons light up that are associated when I, when I jump. Mm -hmm. So this suggests that the concept, uh, the meaning of, of the concept jump uh, it's rooted in my feeling of jumping. And of course, I mean, that's the concept of something that's physical, so it might not seem that crazy, but then it's just like a short hop away to more complex notions that rely on, on the meaning of jump, like mm -hmm. short hop or don't jump to conclusions. And you can play this game where really abstract concepts, like the word democracy, mm -hmm. you can explain them in rhetoric and really physical words. Uh, like people playing tub of war in the case of democracy, uh, the majority wins mm -hmm. or it gets the say. And so, so these notions of things that seem really abstract, like poetry and mathematics, they can actually be traced back to the way that we like feel viscerally the, the world. So if a soft robot has more potential, a greater breadth of 
ways to feel the world and can feel it in more degrees, then it might be able to become more intelligent. And that's what I'm really interested in from the AI perspective. And I think soft robots um, have great potential mm, for right. AI, more yeah. potential than rigid body robots. Yeah, that is very interesting and so deep. And that's why I would like to ask you for the living robot. You, you are a computer science, and that's why I would like to ask you how you have been involved in this kind of uh, work, this, this synergy between biology and computer science. And it just like was a challenging to you because you may, I don't know if this something how this experience was to you like easy or challenging. Yeah, um, it it definitely is challenging. It's rewarding. Um, kind of learning the biology on the fly <laughs> as mm -hmm. I go. It's really exciting. Um, the nice the thing that I like so much about being a computer scientist is that you get to work across many di different disciplines. So I can make a robot in simulation and then transfer it to a real physical robot or as you said, sim to life or sim to meat. There's mm. all kinds of memes that we're, <laughs> we're working on. Uh, and so sim to basically all. Sim can go, can go to whatever. It uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to cross the simulation reality gap. Mm. But some of these things like soft robots and living materials, in my opinion, make the simulation to reality gap, the difference between um, the kinds of behaviors that you your success rate at transferring behaviors from simulation to reality mm -hmm. can actually become much higher if you have materials that are more forgiving. So you don't have to model them exactly. Like if a soft robot can change how its body is interacting with the surface mm -hmm. so that it's easier to model or living systems just basically do a lot of things for free. So they'll, they'll just heal themselves uh, when they're slightly damaged, so you don't have to model everything exactly. So I think that they have a lot of potential for sim to real, which is exciting. I and think, yeah. if you're a computer scientist, yeah. yeah, you get to you get to contribute to the sim part of that. Yeah, I think this is a very interesting point because um, most of research modeling, specifically sometimes modeling and simulation, give you insights about system before going to the reality. But I don't know if you agree in that most of models are really not really capturing the the physics, real physics happening sometimes. And there is maybe fitting uh, in this model. And that's why it's interesting in in, in in your research that you're trying to cross this gap. So I don't know if you acknowledge this problem already in, um, in most of research, the the modeling and simulation is not really converging with, uh, with the real uh, system or self-robotic, for example. Can you comment about that? Yeah, so, well, one of the things that was challenging about the Xenobots project in particular, or that we really had no idea about before we started, we didn't know if this was going to be possible to create an organism, a virtual organism, and then actually transfer it to real biological tissues. Mm -hmm. Because... We had no idea, we still have very little idea how cells and tissues are going to behave when they're in new configurations and that are very different from their default um, like DNA body plan that's encoded in their genome. 
what they expect, the situations they expect to be in. We don't know how, for example, heart cells will sync and beat together. So from the algorithm side, we don't have to necessarily model the exact, we don't have to predict the exact way that they're going to to sync and beat and the cells are going to behave when we put them together in new ways. All we have to do is create a machine that is robust to all the different ways that cells might behave. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did in the paper is basically we said, look, we don't know how cells are going to behave in these situations. Let's take the most conservative approach and just say they're going to behave randomly. So we constructed the xenobots out of skin cells and heart cells. And the skin cells are just like a rigid structure. Mm. And the heart cells expand and contract just like the silicone voxels I was talking about earlier. Yeah. But in this case, they're much, much smaller. Um, so the whole mm. xenobot is, is below a, a millimeter in, in length. And when you put these heart cells together in different ways, we don't know how they're going to sync up, but we can just design something in which regardless of how the simulated heart cells are contracting and expanding, the, the design will still move forward. It will still behave in the way we want it to. So in a way, we kind of are searching for a robust mechanical design that's going to work regardless of how the cells are behaving. So, so this might work for simple behaviors but not be able to scale to more complex behaviors. We don't know yet. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that we're building this pipeline. So we start with this really conservative estimate. We don't know how the cells are going to behave. We design uh, structures that are just robust to it. We observe the behavior and we can feed back in new insights about how the heart cells sync up and don't sync up. So they appear to be syncing up quite a bit more than we were simulating, mm-hmm. um, which is exciting. So the real, the real robots actually started, or xenobots started outperforming the simulated ones, which was exciting for the biologists. But then I felt like, oh, I need to, <laughs> mm-hmm. now I want to update my simulation. I don't want to get beat by the, yeah. by the creatures that Doug Blackiston was building at Tufts. So now we can integrate in what we know or what we observe in the data mm. about the biophysics of how it's actually happening. and. Mm-hmm. We might need new algorithms for understanding how these cells are being uh, correlated. Their behavior is is, is coordinated. Uh, yeah. But once we figure that out, we can just incorporate it into simulation, just keep uh, pumping out new designs, observing their behavior, and feeding back in the kinds of constraints we see mm-hmm. in in reality. Mm-hmm. I have, there's also a question because it's very interesting uh, concerning the shape because you have different structures. So how how like the rotation is happening sometimes? Is something you you go to like micro scale if every cell and you then I don't know how you can predict this kind of rotation before seeing again in, in in the lab. So but how how you manage to predict something like that in simulation before going to real uh, mm-hmm. situation? Yeah. Well, so basically we didn't know at first how the cells were going to behave, and I just came up with some naive mm-hmm. um, model. Mm-hmm. And so this was before even we started with the random uh, actuation. I, I la- allowed the virtual robots to determine what shape they should be and allowed their muscle to be very coordinated. And we observed the behavior of the, the simulated robots and they were galloping across mm-hmm. the simulated floor. 
and then we looked at some preliminary um, xenobots that were made by Doug and these things, they were not galloping, they were kind of shuffling. They always had part of their body touching the ground. Um, this is due, they're in an aqueous solution, they have negative buoyancy, so they're always touching the ground. They're not galloping like my simulated creatures. So we kind of just took some heuristics about what was missing in the environment in simulation compared mm -hmm. to the real environment and just incorporate them in manually. But we did have metrics that we were trying to um, make sure that the simulation was closer to reality. So we measured this time that the simulated robots were in contact with the floor, mm -hmm. and then we adjusted the parameters of actuation to be not as strong, so it couldn't gallop, not as coordinated, so yeah. again, it couldn't jump off the plane. And also we, we started simulating really crude hydrodynamics because the actual xenobots are in water. And so all of this kind of conspired to allow the behavior to at least visually match the xenobots quite well. And then quantitatively, we could measure how much they were on the floor, how, how long they were in contact with the ground plane. And after we incorporated these new constraints, they matched uh, the, the real xenobots mm -hmm. much better. Yeah. So there's still parts of that process that need to be automated and maybe you have a computer system, a camera that watches or there's sensors somehow that you can do this automatically and automatically tune aspects of the simulation. But for now, those things, some of those things were still done manually. Yeah. So for that, when you go from just a scale to larger scale, or do you think the same, same assumption or parameters you have will be different in like, example outside the lab and when we go from the lab to real application do you think now maybe it's too early but do you think it's, it would be completely different or you have to consider different approaches to go from micro scale to macro scale for example did you imagine something yeah. like that yeah totally I, I think that that's why we we don't want to build one specific sim to real software and, and manufacture pipeline or program that just does one thing. It simulates in one way and then it builds it. We want to build this pipeline. It's not really a pipeline. It's more like a feedback loop. It has to be able to continuously update the simulation parameters and the way that designs are being selected. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, when the environment changes even slightly, the designs might no longer transfer. So if you start building them, in different environments, or I think you said larger, then we might need new kinds of building blocks. They might mm. need bones, for example, to support their weight. We don't know. I'm trying to get Doug to build a really big Xenobot. Yeah. So it just, it just requires a lot more time on his end. So right now, another thing that's manual is the building of the Xenobots is done by hand. Mm -hmm. And it requires Doug to take apart a lot of frog embryos and take stem cells from them. They're very early embryos. Yeah. And some of those cells are fated to become cardiac tissue and other ones just become skin tissue. And he could add other ones in there that are, are you know, convince them to turn into bone tissues because they're pluripotent stem cells that can become anything. Um, but then if he's going to yeah. build a really big one, he would need to take a lot more frog embryos. It would take a lot more time. Yeah. And 
yeah, it's, it's kind of a labor-intensive process right now to mm-hmm. put these cells together in the right way, let them develop and carve out by subtraction exactly how um, the, the body shape is going to look like. Yeah. So if, yeah, if they're bigger, it takes more time. One of the things we're really interested in is automating this process. We have a couple of ideas how. It's not so easy as just bioprinting uh, the Xenobot with a bunch of cells stored in in the printer because for one we don't quite have that fine of resolution to print the really small xenobots maybe some of the bigger ones we're talking about might be possible Hmm. but even if we had the resolution we don't just want to print something in a in a particular place that stays still well, first of all, you're printing something that's living, so it's not going to stay still. And you need to guide all the emergent behavior of development towards desirable outcomes. So if if you don't let the cells develop, then they're not going to stick together and form a coherent organism. So you have to give them some freedom. You can't like print them into some kind of scaffold mm-hmm. um, or else they're not going to form an organism. You could You can make a biohybrid robot that way, but not... A xenobot as far as I can tell we're thinking of a couple of, of ways to kind of convince the cells to move in certain ways and come together in certain patterns with that's more hands-off like using bioelectricity you can make cells migrate in certain ways and there's all kinds of really cool videos online if you look up electrotaxis and you can see that with really small uh, electric chips with, with Mm. diodes on on the bottom of a petri dish you can make cells dance and go in circles and go Mm. all the way to the left of the dish all the way to the right of the dish so we feel like if we can do that with some kind of selective adherence we might be able to automate the process of building them Mm -hmm. uh, at scale yeah so i would like to ask you because as you may know software robotics community most of research sometimes build on using smart material and some of application like micro software robotics to be in direct delivery or anything like that. So, what's the advantages when you work in, in living robots uh, compared to like smart material? Do you think that the community have to be more focused in this direction? Because you mentioned that if we go to larger scale, we have to have a more frog employee, and that's that's something maybe maybe worrying for others. This is like another scenario. So how you would answer this question? Yeah, so I think that there are advantages to building robots out of synthetic materials, and there's advantages and disadvantages to building them out of living materials, and also out of doing hybrid robots Mm -hmm. that are part synthetic and part. So I think that people should be trying to do as many different things as possible. Mm -hmm. We don't know what jobs are going to require certain robot made out of certain material. There also, I think, could be principles that we learn from having to deal with cells that have their own uh, agency and agendas and try to coerce them into building uh, useful robots or xenobots. We might be able to learn things about how we could deal with smart materials that also behave similarly and distributed systems and how we can guide them towards uh, beneficial outcomes. So I Mm -hmm. think that we should be trying all kinds of different things and in the end, build the robot out of whatever makes the most sense. 
The advantage of Xenobots I can speak to a little bit more than other kinds of materials that I don't have experience with, mm. um, but Xenobots have a lot of advantages. They also have, I mean, disadvantages, but <laughs> I'll list the advantages first. So yeah. they're self-healing. Mm-hmm. If you cut it, you cut the Xenobot almost in half, the cells will stitch its body back up automatically, which mm-hmm. from a robotics perspective was super exciting. But yeah. in hindsight, it's kind of obvious because they're tissue and they have a lot of practice doing this. That's what they do. They, they heal wounds. Um, they're also self-powered, which from a robotics perspective is also really exciting. Mm-hmm. So they, they have, they basically come preloaded with yolk from their um, embryo, which is protein and fat in the cells. They burn that off. And then after about a week or two, they kind of just disintegrate into dead skin cells, which means they're biodegradable, which is Mm. another advantage. Uh, So if we want to do environmental cleanup jobs, for example, we don't want to be adding more pollution from robots that we deploy in the environment and maybe they're made of plastic and they're in the ocean, they're degrading and adding even more microplastics in the ocean as they're trying to clean it up. So having biodegradable and biocompatible robots and really small robots that are self-powered and self-healing, there's a lot of advantages there. So (laughs) the one thing Mm -hmm. that is one of the disadvantages is that they are less controllable than a traditional robot. Mm. So we can get them to do very simple behaviors right now, like moving in a straight line or in a circle, or we can program them to uh, push a pellet to basically deliver a payload from one position to another, or they tend to just kind of naturally work together in a swarm and they will herd particles together into piles. But we have very, we don't have a lot of control over these robots besides changing their shape. At least if they're just going to be built out of muscle and skin, we can change where the muscle is and we change their shape, which is going to affect how they move. Mm. They're made of cells, so the cells are acting and sensing, and they might bump into a wall, and that might change the contraction of the muscles and cause them to yeah. move in a different direction. But to actually control how the behavior is going to change based off of the sensors to do closed loop control autonomously, like without having, without you, you can control them also with optogenetics, which is basically like you genetically modify the muscle tissue to be sensitive to certain kinds of light. And you can shine the light to make them stop or start pumping and moving. So we can do things like that. But if we want autonomous robots, they're going to be able to go in the environment and do something mm-hmm. useful and use and follow gradients and, do more closed loop um, kinds of behaviors, it's not quite clear yet how that's going to be accomplished. So that's one of the the downsides. Um, So I think that maybe the answer could be some kind of hybrid robot. And there's a lot of work already in hybrid and biohybrid machines. So actually, I think one thing I'd like to clear up um, is that a lot of the press is saying that Xenobots are the first living robot. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's not quite clear we don't have really good definitions of, of life and robots, so mm-hmm. it's not quite fair to say that, especially since there's such great work that's already been done using heart muscle as actuators. Uh, in particular, it's been embedded in like silicone scaffolds that look like a jellyfish yeah. or a stingray, and they've been controlled in this way without the genetics that I kind of described. 
Um, so this work has been done and there's been nano robots built out of DNA. I think that xenobots are unique in that they're completely biological tissue and they develop so there's some kind of emergence in how their, yeah. their bodies form. The real uh, the thing from the computer science side that I'm proud of is that these are the world's first computer designed organisms or biobots. So all of the other synthetic biology and biohybrid machines, and in fact, most robots and technologies in general are manually designed. Mm. But the whole point of evolutionary robotics, which is the field I'm really interested in and study right now, is that in some situations, especially when you don't know how the material is going to behave, like these heart cells, you don't want to assume a lot and you, you want to assume as little as possible and just let a computer program or an evolutionary algorithm or something design the machine from scratch. You just tell the computer what you want the biobot or the organism or the robot to do, and it can come up with a design that you never would have thought of. So when we tend to design machines, we tend to make them look like animals or things that are familiar or us. Mm -hmm. When the computer designs the shape of xenobots or of a soft robot more generally, it doesn't share our kinds of biases. So it can be a really creative collaborator. It can suggest designs that we never would have thought of. So for example, in the xenobots project, one of the designs that it came up with just to move in a straight line was a donut shape, like a torus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of like a walking uh, donut. It was mm. very strange. Yeah. There's no way that there's, we, we ended up building this, but uh, we didn't try to layer it with the heart tissue. So we don't know if it would have behaved in the same way, uh, but we transferred its structure. It's, it's buildable, mm-hmm. but it's definitely not something that would have been manually designed. And then it, it became something that was really inspiring as well to us. Um, so we saw that there was a whole through the design and the, the reason why this evolved in simulation is because we were simulating the xenobots in water. So if you have a hole through your center, you can reduce the drag, the hydrodynamic drag. So these things can move more quickly through water with a hole through their body. But once we saw that hole, it inspired us to basically stick a little virtual pill inside of it. So this could be like uh, seen as intelligent drug delivery or simulation of it. Mm -hmm. And then it inspired us to come up with all different kinds of new tasks that we would ask the computer to design uh, Xenobots for, like explicitly saying, you have to store a pill in your body somewhere in a pouch, design uh, the shape of this like uh, pill transporting uh, robot. So in that way, I feel like even if humans are still in the loop making robots, overseeing Mm. it, and even building them and adjusting the designs, it's still really useful to have a computer just spit out a bunch of designs and maybe remove some pretty bad ones before you try to build them. Personally, I would like to try to automate the whole process because I think that we think we're really good at designing machines, but there's not a lot of evidence that we are. So I'd like to remove as much bias as possible and just let a system automatically design and manufacture robots. But in situations where you want a human in the loop, I still think having this computer generate designs to, to inspire you is something that every engineer should have this tool available to them. Yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, and that's why I would like to skew, but the point of uh, also the control, you highlight that you still figure out that 
Do you think this is comes out from like also understanding how Dinobots is just behave because it has intelligence behavior and do you think that's why maybe we need more understanding of this intelligent behavior why it behaves in certain behavior and and coming to because interested in evolution robotics how this design generated i mean how many suggestions you can make it is because sometimes you can't imagine what kind of behavior they can do or what kind of shape they can do so how you can make this kind of suggestions that can maybe matching a new shape generated you never expected yeah i think you're right um so you have to have some notion of how the machine can act if you're going to make a simulation of it yeah um there's some things that are probably in that simulation already innately um i mean we you could you could try to see like what's the smallest amount of information you need to put in a robot so that it can simulate itself or so that you can design new ones and there's some work on self-modeling um and which use physics engines and it's it, mm. and assume that you had certain building blocks and then the robot kind of moves in different ways and tries to make a model of its own geometry but you're still assuming what those building blocks look like and the ways that the machine can move so there's been more recent work in which a lot of that's been removed and replaced just by a neural network so there's a robot and it just kind of moves around randomly and it learns to model the the kinds of sensation that it can feel and the ways that that the, it can move just based off of randomly motor babbling and it can build a model of itself but if you if you start with something if you don't start with the robot I think you still have to have some idea about how the building blocks maybe work or maybe you can just start with with a uniform prior and just assume random behavior like we did with the heart cells mm -hmm. and then slowly build in uh constraints but you have to start with some assumption i guess the most the assumption we started with at first was basically that it would be random behavior and that wasn't quite right but it it worked to kind of see this process this feedback loop that so the system could kind of bootstrap itself and and learn to simulate the materials better and better um so i think that that might not always be possible but it it was in the case of of self-modeling robots and it seems to be in in the case of the xenobots mhm mm mhm very interesting so if i ask you about the misconceptions about xenobots and maybe also about soft robotics in general when you are is there are many misconceptions you recognize with while you're working yeah i think that misconceptions might be that there's some essential difference between an organism and a robot so mm -hmm. I don't think that like I said we have very good definitions of these things a robot and organism and I think it would be useful if we could come up with better definitions because no definition is going to be right um but they can be useful and help us think more clearly mm -hmm. about these things and potentially help us build better robots and understand maybe what organisms are doing uh that robots aren't current robots and organisms but when i say there's no difference between a soft robot and an organism um i guess what i mean is that 
just to play with the intuitions here about what is a robot, to me it seems like a robot is something that performs useful work or that was programmed by a computer or um, was programmed by a human to perform some job. But what happens if I take my Roomba that cleans the floor, which is a useful job and definitely a robot, and if I hacked it so it no longer vacuumed, it moved randomly and charged when it needed power, it wasn't really annoying and it wasn't funny and it basically had no value to humanity. It only turned on when I was gone. I didn't see it when I was in the apartment because it was hidden away in the closet. So mm-hmm. I didn't even notice it was there. It wasn't doing anything useful for me. It wasn't annoying or anything. So is that a robot? It just kind of does, is a washing machine a robot? I mean, that does something useful. Um, these things, it's not really clear. And, and you can kind of think about what happens if to just bring this to bring organisms closer to to robots what if we set up a build a robot building factory on the moon mm-hmm. and uh, robots are made out of like naturally occurring metals on the moon and they evolve through natural selection to have their own goals and they evolve the intelligence of wildlife on earth uh, are they robots they're made out of metal and electronics but I mean, we started the process of making them, but they naturally evolved. What if we had an even smaller role in their genesis and we just planted some kind of seed on the moon that self-catalyzed and resulted in, in a process of, of evolution, but it was evolution with metal instead of organic material. And, and it evolved animals and intelligent things, so we all would look at it and say that's intelligent, but they were made out of metal and silicone and electronics. Are those robots or organisms? I think the point I'm trying to make um, is that I don't think that there's any essential difference between organisms and robots. It's just that organisms have been around a lot longer than what we call robots now. But I think that this, the line that distinguishes them is going to become smaller and smaller in the future. So I hope that xenobots can help us think about how that line is going to become smaller and how we can use that to our advantage to make more useful machines so that that's what i think is the misconception is basically that there is some kind of essential difference between uh, a robot and an organism and that you can only be an organism if you're built out of this magical biological stuff and otherwise you're a robot i think that's wrong mm-hmm. yeah to come to intelligence, uh, I would like to ask you because this just a cell then exhibit like emergent behavior, and that's very interesting point because sometimes we have this kind of term about intelligence, body and brain, and this this kind of questions how we can make these shapes very intelligently and using these features of, of the cells uh, as as you did in Zinobot. So I don't know how, how do you see the intelligence in soft robotics in general? Do you think they are really intelligent? Or we still we have a lot of work to do in this direction? Yeah, I, so I think um, maybe this is another, actually this is probably a better misconception, that intelligence is binary. So I think mm. we like to think about things being binary mm. all the time. Uh, maybe it's because of our body or we have two hands and we can, we can think yeah. about one thing versus the other. Maybe an octopus can think about things being uh, an eight-way comparison. I, I don't know, but I don't think intelligence is binary. I think that it comes in degrees, which is more difficult to think about. 
Um, I can speak at least for the Xenobots. Yeah. Uh, they behave collectively and heal themselves and they exhibit what we would call adaptive behavior, at least from looking at them from the outside. Mm -hmm. But there's no electronics, there's no neural tissue. So how is this possible? Yeah. It's, it's possible because the cells themselves are complex machines that sense and act and talk to their neighbors. And that's a form of intelligence, even if it's not neural intelligence. Mm. So I, I think I don't want to, it, it doesn't, it's not that interesting to say like a potato is intelligent and then slowly it becomes more and more intelligent. But at some point I think it's useful to, to think about things just having sensor motor coordination as being a form of intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would like to ask you what is something you are interested in working on in the Xenobot design now, because I think you still have a lot of work to do uh, for you, which you're curious about. So what kind of stuff you are focused on in the short term? At least? So I want to push these Xenobots as far as possible, the technology. So the reason why they're called Xenobots is because the cells that they're made of come from Xenopus lavis, the African clawed frog. Mm. So Xenopus and Xenobot, Xeno also means strange or other, which is fitting for, for these reasons that they're weird machines and the cells are doing things that they normally don't do. But in the paper, we didn't use that word. We used reconfigurable organisms because we're reconfiguring the cells and we can make this out of different kinds of cells and we can add more building blocks and we can try to make them more intelligent and we can make them out of human cells. And this is something I'm interested in because if you had, and I don't know if you call them xenobots or something else, if they're made out of, out of human cells or patients' own cells, they could perform jobs inside of our bodies without um, triggering an immune response. So this is one of the major challenges in microscale robots that we want to do things like targeted drug delivery in our bodies. Mm -hmm. There's different kinds of, of potential um, systems for this, but they all suffer from the immune response challenges. So being able to build something out of a patient's own cells is kind of like a tailor-made robot just for you. It's made out of your own cells. And right now, without them being much more intelligent, they could go around and scrape plaque out of your arteries or, or abrade uh, calcium from arthritic joints. Uh, if we want them to find disease and treat them, they're going to have to be more intelligent. So I, I would like to increase the intelligence of xenobots as one of the things that I'm working on. But more generally, um, I'm interested in applying evolutionary robotics to different kinds mm -hmm. of things, soft robots, uh, metamaterials, mm -hmm. things that we don't understand maybe exactly how they work or you, they're really non-intuitive to build a robot out of these things. Um, can we then just, instead of focusing on understanding exactly how they work at their atomic level, we could just step back and say, this is a building block, just like the heart cell. We don't know exactly how it's going to behave, but that's not going to stop us from building a useful machine out of it. And that's a way also 
to learn about how how actually it's it works by mm -hmm. by building and controlling these bodies we start to understand how the cells work so maybe this is a way to understand uh, things in chemistry or material science that are also kind of complicated so basically non-intuitive design would be kind of the general thing I'm interested in mm. that's a very interesting point I, I would like to ask you about it's kind of black box modeling and uh, you don't have to understand everything but I, I'm really curious because sometimes I, I will speak from smart material perspective sometimes um, you apply like controller to traditional controller to smart material which is uh, behaving nonlinear behavior and have different measurements at different locations. So, do you think that something can really help us in getting like reproducible results at each time, not only tailored for one system at certain mm -hmm. time? Because for Xenobot, there's limitations that the the lifespan is still has to be like I, I think seven days or more. I don't know exactly mm -hmm. the lifespan of the Xenobot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we consider the, the limited lifespan to be something kind of beneficial. Yeah. So if, if they go wrong because we can't model them exactly and they do something we don't want them to do, well, in a week they, they're gone anyway, so who cares? Mm. Um, but you can keep them alive for longer by just having a nutrient-rich um, solution and there's more mm. bioengineering that could be done to give them stomachs. But I, I don't think that that's necessarily a limitation. I mean, when they're made out of biological stuff. We know that living things can mm. last a lot longer yeah. um, than a week. So I, I don't think that's a necessarily a limitation of, mm -hmm. of um, xenobots. Yeah. yeah. But in, I think, yeah, in terms of your point about having robots that are just designed for one specific task being a limitation, um, I agree. And I think that that's one of the major challenges in AI and robotics in general is we're really good at making these specialist machines, but no one's really figured out how to make a generalist machine. And I think that soft robots, because they can change their shape, or biobots, because they can also change their shape and they can kind of adapt to new situations uh, really elegantly, they might provide a solution to this or another way to attack this problem. So if you're a robot that can keep changing the way that it looks and its shape or keep developing, then you should be able to perform lots of different tasks. You're not just stuck doing the one thing that your one shape let you do. Mm. So I, I think there's a lot of potential there to kind of escape this specialist paradigm. Yeah. So I would like to ask you about speaking different language because realistically speaking, we have, and um, I think maybe it's issue sometimes, it depends, but you have the both languages. You understand somehow what happened in biology and you have the computer science side. And soft robotics, yeah, sometimes people have the challenges to speak different languages. How, how, did you have this challenge at, at the beginning or you would be lucky to, to understand both languages? So how do you see this kind of speaking different language and is it really challenging when you do a research to lead to success because at the end of the tunnel you need a successful application uh, out of this research? Yeah, no, it's absolutely challenging, but it's also really rewarding. Mm. So even when I, when I work with Rebecca Kramer Botiglio's lab at Yale, uh, we speak different languages because they're mechanical engineers and material scientists, and I'm a computer scientist. Mm -hmm. So I start 
geeking out about GPUs and they're talking about, you know, stretchable electronics and we really have to learn what the other person's talking about. Yeah. And then when I work with, with Mike Levin's lab and Doug Blackiston, um, they're talking about biological stuff that, you know, I, <laughs> I have mm. no, I, it seems like magic to me. I don't know if they're, if they're just like, if they're just pulling my leg, if, the, if it's, they say all these amazing things and it sometimes it seems like they're just joking like yeah they can put an eye on the back of a tadpole and the eye works and i'm like no way that's not possible but it is they actually did that in their lab so it's kind of biology is amazing and just learning really what's possible yeah. what's difficult to do and what's easy i think those are that's the first thing that we try to do mm -hmm. um so my my advisor Josh Bongard and I, when we are communicating to Mike's lab or Rebecca's lab, what we try to communicate is what's easy and hard for us to do, and we try to ask them the same thing because mm -hmm. we have no idea. Yeah. Um, so I think the biologists were surprised that that simulating swimming um, xenobots was a lot harder than walking ones. And they didn't understand exactly why in the beginning we had to explain that, you know, there's vortices and all kinds of crazy hydrodynamics. We, we don't want to do that. We'd rather just stick with something pushing against the ground. And then uh, the biologists, they have other notions that maybe may are really simple to them that they're not quite sure why we're not getting it. So, yeah, it can be um, challenging. But I think that science only really progresses uh, in the space between established disciplines mm -hmm. so within a discipline if you're just in computer science you're just in biology whatever you already know the questions you're going to ask and the data that you'll accept and it's just about solving these puzzles until enough anomalies come up and give rise to the birth of a new discipline with a new set of objectives and i think that the place that those new disciplines come from is yeah. at the intersection of existing disciplines so I don't know, maybe, you know, if you work on something there, you might end up ushering in the next scientific revolution, like deep learning, for example. And mm -hmm. I think soft robotics and deep learning, yeah. which is all the craze now in AI, um, and those conferences in AI about deep learning have absolutely exploded. Like, uh, they're like Coachella or some kind of concert. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Um, I think that soft robotics has shared a lot of the same trajectory as deep learning. They've both been around for a while, but only recently could we build and simulate them properly. So I think that if we just show a soft robot or a biobot, one that can change its body, stiffness and shape, and do everything that a hundred different specialized rigid robots could do, plus something they never could do, like navigate a tortuous pipe then everyone's going to realize we should be doing soft robotics and that that's the new thing and the conferences will explode for better or worse and yeah maybe maybe one day we won't have to call it soft robotics maybe that will just be robotics and mm -hmm. everything else will be called rigid robots and we'll look back and think how silly it was that robots were just made out of titanium you know yeah <laughs> how rigid they were i think in the future is going to be silly to us yeah but there's most of, of research sometimes is uh, um, in the published paper is not reproducible and um, it, does, it doesn't have meaningful uh, uh, impact and that's why it's challenging how we, it just comes down from you that you had the vision sometimes you had the vision and you share the passion between different groups I, that's, I think this is challenging and that's why if you wanted to have a meaningful um, pr project at the end of uh, the day 
you must have the same vision and uh, sharing the same passion. Do you think that's something uh, is really important when we're working with different uh, groups? Because, for example, we have discussion that some groups have the knowledge about material science and robotics, for example, and others doesn't have the both knowledge. And that's why it's somehow a challenge in, in realistically in, in our field. Do you, do you think that something is, is about vision and having the same passion between different groups? To make it successful, or yeah. if we can say it in a different way, what is the factors to, to ha make sure that you're going to be having a, a beneficial project to humanity as, as the end of this project? Because that's something you're working on. So what are the factors to yeah. make sure it's successful? Yeah, I think you're right. So in the beginning, you mentioned about reproducibility, and you need a certain amount of people that are interested in what you're doing to reproduce it, to make sure that... You know, there just wasn't a bug in my code that made all of the virtual robots move and the temperature in the biology lab wasn't just the, just right so that the the xenobots moved in some way people need to reproduce results in all science under different conditions yeah. so that we can try to make sense of, of really what it means and if if we come up with one paper about xenobots or about a soft robot and whatever that does something mm. and no one reproduces it then mm. Uh, you know, I don't know. It, it, it obviously, it doesn't. It's not going to contribute to, um, like you said, making any positive impact on the world. Probably. Um, maybe we could take the results for granted and maybe use it as uh, evidence, and, and maybe it will help us think about things differently, and, and could help us mm -hmm. uh, move forward. But for us really to accept it as a new theory about the world, we need lots of people to reproduce it. Mm -hmm. And that can be challenging if there's only one person in the world and only one team that's building a particular kind of robot or biobot. So yeah, we, we hope in our particular case that, that our work is seen as, as a cookbook for how any biology lab in the world could reproduce these results. Mm -hmm. So the code is all open source and free, yeah. obviously. I think that's really important for all. Mm -hmm. If you have any science with code, it needs to be open source. And I feel very yeah. strongly about that. Yeah. Um, but also the, the build, the manufacture process of these xenobots can be done by anyone that kind of reads as a cookbook or paper and or supplemental materials on how exactly to reproduce this. Actually, we even have the exact frog embryos that are used. So mm -hmm. anyone really could order the materials and the microscope and the, mm -hmm. the shaping tools. Anyone could buy the stuff that's necessary and can watch the video. You have to, you, you have to be kind of a skilled microsurgeon to do this, but, but if you have the right hand-eye coordination, you practice enough, you can do this. Mm -hmm. uh, you can reproduce these results. So we hope that people will reproduce them and, and help us make better methods of building these things and simulating them. And this is just the first example. So we kind of did a lot of things in a naive way, and there's probably better ways to simulate it, mm -hmm. better ways to incorporate the real dynamics of the tissues, better ways to build the actual device in the end. And if people don't contribute to this and it's just one lab doing it, then it's not going to go nearly as far. And also in terms of just different people, um, all four of the members on our Xenobot team, we kind of look the same, you know, we're four white guys and we think 
kind of in the same way. So we need diversity also in the kinds of people that are thinking about these problems. So they mm. come up just like the computer coming up with creative solutions. Yeah. We need diverse people to come up with creative hypotheses and creative ways of attacking the problem. So yeah. diversity in the sense of like what people are working on and what where people come from and their backgrounds of of uh, who they are and also their their technical training, I think is super important. And that's definitely somewhere that science in general has a, has a lot of improvement to, to do, to work mm. on. That's a super interesting point. And coming to ethics and regulation for Genebot, do you think that's something you have to be considered now? And uh, yeah, that's something I, I would like to ask if you consider it already in your research uh, for ethics and regulation because Some comments mm -hmm. in, in Xenobots, I see some people say you're very scared about the, this Xenobots. Do you think that's kind of hype as well around it? Yeah. So uh, we're obligated to have ethics and biosafety regulations for all uh, biotechnologies and all robotic technologies. We need to think about how technologies are going to impact the public and If more bad than good is going to come out of it, mm -hmm. then we should question if it's worth making these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, of course, when we make sense of of everything with metaphors and stories, and in particular science, it's very we're trying to kind of conceptualize things that are invisible to our naked eyes. So we make up metaphors yeah. and ways of thinking about these things, and we kind of turn back to stories that we've heard, yeah. especially when the object of the investigation has to do with cells, tissue development, replication. We start thinking about Frankenstein and Brave New World and it really freaks us out. And I don't know exactly why this is. People mm. have theories about it. Um, some of the more interesting theories I've heard is that you know, we're not comfortable with our own flesh. Yeah. Of course. I mean, our bodies are gross and, you know, we're not comfortable with our own bodies a lot. So <laughs> things made out of flesh kind of just gross us mm -hmm. out or we think that it's wrong. And a lot of people have this kind of vague argument that we're playing God. But what mm -hmm. does that mean? You know, if you make a soft robot and it's intelligent out of out of traditional electronics, how is that any different? I don't know. And also these people, when their kids get sick or they get sick, they hope that the scientists did the work to, to understand diseases and they played God or something. There's some kind of vague sensibility that there's a line that people draw. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, I think it's up to them to kind of articulate that, that better. For me, the fact like all of the beneficial things that can come out of, of robots and xenobots, I think in particular, cleaning the environment and, and helping uh, with medical things inside of our bodies, I think yeah. it would be unethical not to push this technology a lot, a lot further. And just one last thing I would say about, about this is that um, all technologies could be considered playing God, whatever that means exactly. All technologies can be used for good and bad, even something like The internet is used for good and bad. Fire yeah. is used for good and bad. You know, every every technology can be used for good and bad, and it's about it's really about basically society being aware of what's possible. It's possible to build machines by by putting together tissues. So you be aware that this is possible. They're very simple, and when it starts to complexify, if it does, 
we can form regulations that make sense um, for these technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, though, I would say that xenobots are a lot, and soft robots are a lot safer than their alternatives. So soft robots are safer in interacting with humans in general, and xenobots are safer than pretty much all other synthetic biology that people are doing yeah. with um, gene drives and um, weaponizing yeah. uh, viruses. And there's all kinds of, of crazy things that have been done and, and uh, making new bacteria and things that are all already pathogenic and they're already spreading, replicating. And xenobots are simply just taking cells and putting them together in different ways, and they disintegrate after a week. So I think that they're a lot safer than the alternatives. So yeah. I hope that this is motivation for people to explore this technology further. Mm -hmm. I can't agree more with you. So I would like to ask you about, as you are about to graduate, and, and I think you're going to be a researcher, that's why do you think ego is important for the researcher when he become professor or something in, in your life? And that's why do you think ego is important? Um, I think that it's important to have confidence and high self-esteem. Mm -hmm. It's way it's way too easy to feel like an imposter, especially mm -hmm. when you're working at the intersection of disciplines and you're trying to understand how biology works and. You know, I, more than once I've step, stepped back and be like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, what am I, how, I can't do this, you know. Mm. I don't know enough about this, this subject. How am I going to contribute to science? It's way too easy to feel like you don't fit in. Um, so you, you need to have confidence, but not, e I, it depends what you mean by ego, but you definitely don't, um, you need to be a considerate person. You can't, uh, you, you you don't want to think that what you're doing is better than what everyone else is doing just because you're doing it. And there's certainly researchers mm -hmm. that it seems like that's how they think. So yeah, I mean, for me, I look at different researchers and I think, wow, I really respect this person and how modest they are. And I really want to be like that person. I want, when mm -hmm. I graduate and when I become a professor, I want, I want to behave like them and respond to questions mm -hmm. like them and conduct myself like them. And then I see other researchers that I don't necessarily want to follow in their footsteps. So I've just yeah. been kind of picking up these small details and also realizing that I do some of these things that could be turnoffs and trying to correct my own behavior. So hopefully, hopefully through reinforcement learning, I can become a better person and researcher in like, you know, 10 yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. But if I ask you where innovation mostly comes from, if you can just summarize briefly how, how we make sure that it's to be innovative. Sometimes many of each student, you feel it like a lonely process, but sometimes we have the support, might be mentally or, I don't know how it's how how you see it from your eyes that because you had this experience. Huh? Yeah, I think that there's there's nothing that can replace good mentors, mm. and there's no way I would be able to do any of my work without my advisor uh, Josh Bongard, who's been an incredible teacher. Yeah, and I came into this experience knowing nothing, very little about robotics, uh, very little about physical simulation, nothing really about biology, mm -hmm. nothing about mechanical engineering, and just learning these things 
on the fly and realizing that that is possible to do. You don't have to, you don't have to be some like child genius yeah. that knows everything by the time they're 12, but it can feel that way sometimes when you're stepping into a discipline. So having mentors and advisors there is really important. And I've been so lucky to have Josh and also Rebecca Kramer and Mike Levin and on the Xenobots project, Doug Blackiston, mm-hmm. who is a scientist and PI in, in Mike Levin, the lab that Mike Levin runs. So on the Xenobot project, I had three basically mentors. Mm-hmm. They're all experts and they all, it's not always like this, but every single person on that paper, the paper wouldn't exist without all of us. Yeah. So if Josh wasn't there, we wouldn't have really realized mm. why this was useful as a as a robot or a new technology if mike wasn't there we wouldn't have been thinking about how cells could yeah. possibly be acting in in new ways that they don't normally act in and how this could be insightful for biology and if doug wasn't there no one could build these yeah. things and i like to think that if i wasn't there um we wouldn't have the simulation either, but I don't of know. Course. It seems like probably other people could have stepped in and done what I've done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's been, yeah, it, it's been a great experience. And I, I would say if I had um, advice to give, it would be if you're interested in this kind of work, anyone can contribute. It's basically just a matter of being curious yeah. and finding, if you are interested in doing a PhD, it's about finding an advisor for. somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Not going to a school and saying, I want a PhD. It's going, finding an advisor you think that you'll work well with and going to them and saying that you wanted, and you're talking to them and, and figuring out if it would be a good fit for both of you. Yeah. But that's really how I think that the system uh, works when it works uh, well. That's, that's how it is conducted. I think Yeah, I can't agree anymore. So we are coming close to the end. I would like to ask you what is this advice was given to you in the journey, whether professionally or personally, would like to share. And if you saw this, like, say, three important um, factors or traits or faculties a student must have during the journey as a BT student. Yeah, so I mentioned just now that yeah. curiosity yeah. is important and self-esteem, if you, if you can yeah. muster it. Um, Perseverance, mm. because of course <laughs> there's science is kind of for manic depressants. Like you are going to almost all 99% of the time you're failing, mm. and then if you're lucky, sometimes you find something by accident. The stars just align, and you come up with a new technology, and everyone's really excited about it. Um, so you have to really persevere through yeah. the failures to get to any successes and then also like we were talking about um with the ego i think you have to have empathy towards other people and seeing where they're coming from and this will help you mm. collaborate with other people and also just be a better person i think yeah um the best advice that i've gotten i've gotten so much good advice from from the people that i've mentioned uh, josh mm. rebecca doug and mike um recently one piece of advice from my advisor Josh Bongard, and I don't know if I've been following it exactly, but I've been trying to, mm. is when you do interviews like this, not to try to sound smart or say, you know, use big words, but mm. just talk as though you're talking to your past self, 
that didn't know what you know now wow. and try to communicate to that you know, version of your past self what you're doing now, why you find it interesting, etc. So I feel like that was really good advice and I hope yeah. that my yeah. past self would be able to kind of follow some of my ramblings in this interview. Um, if not, it's something you know, I'm still, still working on. Yeah, it's like to be grounded as well, I think. To be grounded, yeah, yeah to people, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's really fantastic advice. So I would like to give you any final words you would like to say to the robotic community. Um, well, thank you for having me on. I I guess final words would be that I would just give a quick shout out to the kinds of innovators and scientists that yeah. I'm really inspired by and that have shaped. The work that I've done and that Xenobots and hopefully other things to come wouldn't be possible without them. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be Gordon Pask. You can look these people up. I won't, ex I won't explain who everyone is. <laughs> Carl Sims. Yeah. And you should look up all of them. <laughs> Adrian Thompson. Yeah. Hod Lipson and Josh Bongard. Oh. So th these, uh, I would just say thank you to them for yeah. uh, making the work that I do possible. Yeah, that's very interesting, and I really enjoyed this discussion. And on behalf of IEEE I would like to thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Okay, bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.